of Titus. The book of Titus, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got Bibles in these black chair pockets and at the ends of the side aisles, which you're free to borrow. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep that one. Um, It's wonderful to have God's Word. So Titus, the Apostle Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. If you're using one of these paperback Bibles we provided, that's on page 857. Should be right in that neighborhood, and it'll also be on the screen behind me. Um, So please follow along, Titus chapter 2, as I read. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound, in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. You are what you eat. I heard this pithy piece of parental wisdom for years before I knew what it meant. So as a child, I always imagined that I would just be like sitting in my chair and suddenly be able, like begin to swell into a massive donut kind of like Violet Beauregard in Charlie and Chocolate Factory. You're becoming Violet, Violet. She becomes this giant blueberry. And because that was so ridiculous in my mind, I just figured this was some sort of parental manipulation to get me to eat my veg. Well into college, I thought that my body functioned essentially like the DeLorean in Back to the Future Part 2. Do you remember? Back to the Future Part 2, the DeLorean has been modified. It can fly, and its fuel is garbage. So Doc Brown kind of flips open a lid. He drops banana peels, you know, a half-drunk can of beer, closes it up, and away they go. And I thought I could basically put anything into my body, and as long as I was not hungry, I was doing fine. Um, I I described my college diet to my wife, Kim, recently, and the color just drained from her face. Because we are what we eat, aren't we? Our our body, it repairs itself, it builds itself up, it, it keeps itself running based on what we put into it. If we're not Eating things with iron, we're not getting iron. You are what you eat. And what's true of our biological life is also true of our spiritual life, which is Paul's point in Titus chapter 2. Paul says that if you're taking in true truth, what he calls sound doctrine, healthy teaching, if, you're ta- if what you're taking in 
is good, your life will be good. And if what you're taking in is bad, your life will be bad. And for Paul, sound teaching, healthy doctrine is all about grace. The grace of God. And this is what we looked at last week in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. That this grace of God, this, his kindness for those who don't deserve it, has appeared in Jesus. That Jesus, God's son, came from heaven to give himself, to give his life, to set us free from sin. Sin is our disobedience against God. Sin is what alienates us from him. And Jesus came to set us free from sin and to cleanse us from it, to make us clean, to make us pure, to make us holy. And it's all by grace. So we're not accepted by God because of what we've done, because we're good, because we're charitable, because we're upstanding. We're accepted because of what Jesus has done. Not our goodness, but Jesus' goodness. We're accepted by looking away from ourselves and trusting in him. That's grace, Paul says. That grace has appeared. And he says that that grace, that good teaching, that feast for the soul, results in a certain kind of life. He says that the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness, to live godly lives in the present age. So this grace changes us. It gives us a certain kind of life. And not just a certain kind of life, but a certain kind of life together. Grace produces a certain kind of community. And that's what we're going to be looking at in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 and verse 15 this morning. So as we go along, if you consider yourself a Christian, it would be worth asking the question, is this happening in my life? Am I experiencing the full goodness of God's grace? Am I being trained by it how I ought to be? Or is there more goodness available to me that I'm not benefiting from yet? And if you don't consider yourself a Christian, it's worth asking the question, what would it be like to live this kind of life? What if this was happening in my life? So we're going to pick up three threads from this passage, three characteristics of a community shaped by grace. And the first is, a community shaped by grace heeds God's word. So look at, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And there's bookends. It picks up again in verse 15. Declare these things. Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. So Paul says, This word about Jesus, this word that I've spoken, is so important that, Titus, you have to insist on this. You have to preach it and teach it. You have to let no one disregard you. And he says, you're not just teaching teaching about Jesus, but you're teaching what accords with sound doctrine, what agrees with grace, the kind of life that results from it. So Paul tells Titus that he needs to make sure that the, the community of grace is shaped by God's word, heeds God's word, responds to God's word, that no one disregards it. Why? Because people shaped by grace love grace. Don't you love that your acceptance, your approval, your your security with God is not based on how you do day by day. That it's based on Jesus' performance, Jesus' life, Jesus' death, Jesus' resurrection, things that don't change. Aren't you glad that God accepts you by grace? When, you, when, you, when you're shaped by grace, you love grace. And when you love grace, you want to experience more and more grace. And where we experience grace, where we encounter Jesus, the life that he's called us to, is in this book. It's in the Bible. We experience grace through the truth contained here. I want, I want to read how Paul introduces himself and this letter 
in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So Paul says that the good news about salvation and eternal life is manifested in God's word, in the preaching of the apostles, which is recorded in this book. This book is a fountain of grace for us because this book is God talking to us about Jesus and what he's done for us and the life that he can make in us. So if this book were just a book of rules, and there are rules here, and those rules are good for us, but if it were just a book of rules, if it were just a collection of reminders of all the ways we fail, we would get so tired of this book. We would just get sick of it, wouldn't we? We'd just leave it on the shelf. Who needs that many reminders of how far short you fall, fail? How, how, who, who needs that many blows to your self-esteem? But if this book is the epic story of how God created a people for himself and how we how we estranged ourselves from him and how he overcame every enemy, even death itself, to win us back to himself. If this book is a record of grace, then we ought not to tire of it and we ought not to put it on the shelf. We ought to regard it and not disregard it. So what is your attitude towards this book? Are you eager to read it? Eager to drink from this fountain? Are you eager to hear it, to understand? Are you eager to hear not just the good news about Jesus, but the life that grace shapes in you, the life that God is calling us to? Are you eager to pursue that life, the life laid out in God's word? And I'm sure you know that there are pressures on preachers today not to teach the things that accord with sound doctrine. There, God has unpopular opinions you guys know that? Because God has an opinion about where, where sex belongs, doesn't he? In a marriage between a man and a woman. And God has an opinion about justice, about what people with privileges owe to people without privileges. And God, God has an opinion about how we spend our time and how we spend our money. And everything God says is good for us. So there are pressures on preachers not to say those things, to downplay that. But are you the kind of hearer that invites it? Do you want to hear what God says? Do you want to hear all of God's goodness and his grace in this book? And I, I can ask this because Ryan's not here, but, but how do you hear Pastor Ryan when he stands up here? Do you welcome his teaching? Do you invite him to say, do you ask of him every Sunday, what does God say? We want a word from God. Or do you just want him to make you feel better so you can go on your day with a clear conscience? Do you make his work a joy. And at the same time, are you, willing, are you willing to hold us accountable to this book? Are you willing to compare what I say and what Ryan says to what you find here? And if you see a string, call us out for the good of the church. Because I'm not saying that a community shaped by grace heeds preachers. I'm saying a community shaped by grace heeds God's word. So a community shaped by grace heeds God's word Secondly, a community shaped by grace pursues distinctive godliness. And I don't mean distinctive from people who are outside the community, from non-Christians, although that's true and we'll, we'll get to that. But I mean distinctive for one another. Because what this passage says is that each person in the community, each, 
Each person, as they pursue godliness, they pursue it in a little bit different way based on their life stage, based on um, what, what, how, how they are in life, how far along they are, what they're doing at the time. There's a distinctive kind of godliness that God calls each of us to. And in a community shaped by grace, everyone's pursuing their distinctive role, their distinctive kind of godliness. And we'll see that in verses 2 to 10. So Paul tells Titus to teach what accords with sound doctrine, the life that agrees with grace, and he addresses five groups. He addresses older men, older women, younger women, younger men, and finally bond servants. So we're going to look at these as we go through. So first, older men, in verse 2, Paul says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. So what does it look like for, for older men to pursue distinctive godliness? I'm, trying to, I'm going to try to summarize these in one word to sort of capture. We don't have time for everything, but to capture the essence of what Paul's saying. And I think for older men, the word is pace setter. Paul says that they should set the pace for the church. They should be serious about their walk with God. He says they should be self-controlled, they should be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled, serious about their walk with Christ. And they should be a picture of all-around spiritual health. He says they should be sound. Sound, which means healthy. Sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So they should be sound in faith. They should, they should trust God. Their relationship with him should be sound. They should be sound in love. Their relationships with others are sound. And they should be sound, he says, in steadfastness. They shouldn't be hot or cold, hit or miss, in fits and starts, running well for a while, and then just dropping off, but, but persevering in faith, persevering in love, setting the pace for the rest of us, leading by example. So let me ask those of you, I'm not going to ask anyone to self-identify as old, but if you're older than maybe kind of the mean age of our very young congregation, if your kids are grown um, and, and off to, their, to whatever their life is like, how are you using this season of your life when you have maybe a little bit more time than those of us who have you know, kids running around underfoot? Are you, are you just relaxing, taking it easy, coasting? Are you consumed with work and putting everything into your career? Or are you pressing in to your relationship with God? Are you seeking to become a man worthy of imitation, showing us youngins how it's done? That's older men. Now Paul says to older women in verse 3, Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. So older women are to be mentors. Paul says they are to be teachers of what is good. And he says they're especially to be mentors by their example. So he says that they're to be reverent in behavior. And I love this because the word is, could be literally translated priestesses. That older women are to, they're, they're consecrated to God. Everything they do is a service to him. Um, so because their kids are maybe out of the house, they're not on the sidelines. But, but they get to offer to God their full um, consecrated service, their life to him. And he says they're not to be slanderers or slaves to much wine. So they're not just to kind of sit around and talk about the bad decisions their kids are making and complain about their husbands and did you hear about so-and-so, you know, sipping some wine on the porch. He says that they're to teach what is good, what is noble, 
He says that if their children are grown, they have a new ministry before them, which is the younger women of the church, the younger women of the community. He says they're to teach what is good. And so I, I, I want you, if you consider yourself, don't say old, but older. If you're older, look around this room and see how young we are. I mean, this, this, this church is full of young families. We have no idea what we're doing, right? We are entirely in over our head with marriage and with our kids and balancing that with work. We, we need you desperately. The young women of this church need the older, mature women in this church to teach what is good, to set the example. So older women are to be mentors. He says they're to teach noble things, to teach what is good. And he tells us what those things are they're to pass on in verse 4. He says, And train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. So that sentence is a bit of a minefield, isn't it? Working at home, excuse me, submissive to their own husbands. What kind of regressive, sexist book did God write? And we're going to get to that. But lest we lose the forest for the trees, what does Paul say distinctive godliness means for younger women? He says that they're to be, I would summarize it as cultivators. So they, the older women train the younger women to cultivate a loving and godly home where Husbands are honored, children are cared for, a kind of garden where faith grows and matures. These young women are, he says, they're, they're to be pure and kind and hardworking. They make their homes places their families love to be. They're cultivators. And, but we have some questions to address, right? Like, how does this relate to young women who aren't married and don't have kids? Paul's assumption at the time would have been that most young women would be married because it wasn't a society that made it real easy to be independent and make it on your own. So most young women were married. Most young women had kids. But that's not true of our church. So how does this apply to all of us? Well, even if you don't have kids, you can still be a cultivator. You can still pursue the godliness of self-control and purity and kindness. You can love and honor your friends, encouraging them in their walk with Christ. You can still make your home. You can still make your office an oasis of love and kindness, a place where people love to be, where great conversations happen, great friendships flourish. You can still pursue the mentorship of older women. You can still learn how they manage home and work, how they balance it all. And speaking of home and work, we have to address that where Paul says that these young women are to be working at home. So what does that mean? Does that mean that younger women can't get jobs, they can't work outside the home, that or maybe as soon as their kids are born, they're just done for the rest of their lives. I don't think so. Um, in part because there's a picture of a godly woman in Proverbs 31 who runs a small business and plants a farm. And so, um, so it's not, the Bible's not saying you can't work outside the house, but it's saying there's a certain priority, a kind of responsibility for the home. He talks about how to treat your husband and how to treat your kids and, and how, how to pursue godliness. So, so women don't have to stay home all the time. It doesn't mean they have to do all the housework. Sorry, guys. It doesn't mean um, that, that kind of women tend to the kids while husbands, you know, do the outside stuff. It doesn't mean any of those things, but it means that there's a certain priority for women, for the younger women, to tending the home. Um, it's okay to work outside the home, but it's worth asking a few questions why. Like, are you doing this because it's a blessing to your family? Are you doing this because this extra money 
really helps pay the bills. It helps get the grandkids back to see their grandparents once a year. Are you doing this because it's a huge support to your husband? It takes a load off him. Are you doing this because it's a way of exercising gifts that bless your community and the people around you? If so, that's wonderful. Are you and your husband in agreement about this? Does he bless you in it, or is it a source of tension? And I think it's worth asking, too, if you're working outside the house, are you doing it because it's a blessing to your family, or do you feel like somehow just staying home with kids isn't enough? It's not meaningful enough. It's not enough. You're sort of subpar if you're not doing something more. I think Paul wants to relieve you at least of that this morning. So some, for some women, they can work outside the house and nothing gets dropped at home, right? The, the kids are flourishing, the home is wonderful, the husband's honored, everything's great, and they're working. That's wonderful, well done. But if you're in a season where your kids are really young, there's lots of them, they're climbing the walls, all you can do is keep them alive and sweep the house once a month before someone comes over, if all you can do is stay at home, that's wonderful. That's not lazy. Paul says that that is, that is noble and good. It's beautiful in God's sight. So if you're in that situation, be released. Um, I thought of my wife in this, and I just, I love that God says that um, it's not like you have to accomplish all these things in the world, that it's noble to love a husband, love kids, tend a home, and grow in godliness. I love it. So last question on this. What does it mean, man, there's so many of these, what does it mean to be submissive to their own husbands? What does this mean? Does it mean that, that women are supposed to be sort of doormats that their husbands can just, can just walk all over, tell them what to do and what to think? The husband makes all the decisions. The wives just follow quietly along. They're sort of less than full partners in the marriage. It doesn't mean that at all because God made men and women in his image equal in dignity, equal in value, equal in ability to glorify him. He created us equal, but he didn't create us the same. We're complementary, right? We're not interchangeable. He created men and women with certain strengths, certain calls that complement the other to make us better partners, to make a marriage a better team. So, in marriage, part of that complementarity is God's call to the husband to lead and the wife to submit to his leadership, which is to honor his leadership, invite it, follow it, encourage it. It's not to make her subordinate. It's, it's the way that they work together. So the husband is to be, Paul says, the leader of the family. And the leader is the one, this is a helpful way of thinking of it, the leader is the one who says, let's. Let's pray. Let's go take the kids to see Mrs. X. I think they'd really cheer her up. Let's Let's stay in tonight. I think we've been doing too much. We just need some family time. Let's stay in. Um, let's, let's sit down and talk about our calendars. Can we see what we got going this week? The husband is the leader, and he says, let's. And he's not the only one. It's not to say that the women can't initiate that, but that's the pattern. The pattern is he takes responsibility and says, let's. Let's do this. And the wife's call is to love him by encouraging his leadership rather than just taking the reins. So if you're, the, if you're a wife who is, smarter than your husband, and you are more decisive than your husband, you're godlier than your husband, you're a superior in every way, and I, don't raise your hand, but you know who you are. <laughs> you're, still called, <laughs> you're still called to encourage his leadership and to follow along, not to just take over because you can. That's God's call to him, and it's God's call to you. 
And if, if the husband is using his leadership the way he's supposed to, to love Christ, to love her as Christ loved the church and gave up his life for her, then that complementary marriage is going to be a beautiful thing to behold. So I, I am relieved that I've passed through those questions. You can ask me afterwards. And so, but first, we just addressed the young men. Now we need to speak of what Paul says to them in verse 6. He says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Amen. Who knows that young men need self-control? Right? It almost sounds like Paul is saying, that's really all you can handle right now. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Leave it at that. And that's, that's how it sounds. There's a little bit more to it. I want to read that again in a way that brings out something that's kind of, kind of, uh, it's kind of, it's not distinct in the English translation. This is, how, this is how it reads more in the original. It says, Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, showing yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And so part of the way Titus is to, is to train these young men, he's to teach them to be self-controlled, but he's also to set them an example of godliness, that part of his teaching is the way he lives his life in front of them. So young men are to be imitators. Just like the young women, they have a valuable and consequential life in front of them. They're called to lead their families. They're called to grow into these pace setters for the church. And one way God wants them to grow into that is through watching mature Christians, like Titus, like, like, the, like the older men of this congregation, watching how do they treat their wife? How do they speak to their kids? How do they balance work and family? How do they do that? I want to see it. I want to be godly like that. Younger men are to be imitators. So, for the young men and the young women of the congregation, are you pursuing relationships where this kind of thing can happen? Are you seeking friendships with people that aren't like you, that are further ahead in the race, they're further down the road, and they've encountered things and walked with God through things that you haven't, and they have lots to teach you? Are you, are you learning from them what God intends you to learn? And, and for the older saints, for the mature members, are you... Are you initiating these kinds of relationships with younger believers in the church? Are you watching for where you can help, for where you can encourage, for where you can set an example or say, it looks like you're struggling a little bit. Why don't you watch this? Are you pursuing these kinds of relationships? So many of us young people are far away from our parents, right? And we need older people to initiate with us and help us to walk in God's way. And then the last group that Paul addresses is bond servants, and the word is literally slaves, but English translations soften that oftentimes because when we read slaves, we think slaves like in the West Indian slave trade, slaves like in the American South, slaves like in the British Empire, and that's not exactly what's happening here. Oftentimes, these bond servants were in it because of debts that they'd incurred. Um, oftentimes, they were able to buy their own freedom, work it off. It wasn't quite the same but it was still a problem, right? It was still dehumanizing. People shouldn't own people. So it wasn't a great existence. But, but Paul doesn't tell them to get free. He doesn't tell them to escape. He doesn't tell them to overthrow. He tells them to submit. And so um, that can be a little bit of a stumbling block, I think, for people. So it's important to see that the New Testament doesn't approve of slavery at all. Paul says, he writes a letter to a friend named Philemon who has a slave, and he encourages him to set his slave free and to treat him not as property but as his brother in Christ. So the New Testament doesn't approve of slavery. It undermines it. But there are places like this where Paul says, it's not right that you're a slave, but for the sake of your witness, don't rebel, submit. 
Um, I can talk more about that with you afterwards if you have questions on that. But I want to, I want to, to move to how we apply this. How do we apply that Paul tells bondservants that in your phase of life, what it means to be godly is to submit, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith. I think the most natural application for us is our work. Our employers don't own our persons, but they own our time. And, and, if, and if we have bad employers or if we have employers that joke around with us, it's easy to start getting lazy. It's easy to start um, not treating them with respect, to start kind of pilfering, stealing time by doing other things, um, talking back, speaking too freely. And Paul says that we are to, to work hard, to submit to their leadership, um, to, to not steal, to not talk back, um, to work with integrity. So, to draw kind of that section to a close, wouldn't it be wonderful? Just, I mean, think on the big picture. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be a part of a community like this where people in different life stages are encouraging one another? They're in each other's lives. They're setting examples. They're asking questions. They're, they're helping one another work in ways that are pleasing to God and raise kids in ways that are pleasing to God. Everyone is, is doing their part, pursuing their distinctive kind of godliness to the glory of God. So community shaped by grace heeds God's word, which leads to pursuing distinctive godliness. And when the community is marked by godliness, what happens? Third and finally, a community shaped by grace shows the beauty of the gospel. Three times in this passage, Paul makes clear that the degree to which we pursue godliness together determines the way people around us pursue, perceive the truth of Christianity. So in verse 5, he says that women are to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And in verse 8, he says that Titus should show sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And in verse 10, he says that bondservants should be not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So negatively, Paul says that when our lives are out of step with grace, when our lives are not pursuing distinctive godliness, it gives people a reason not to listen. It gives them a reason to disregard God's word. It gives them an occasion to speak ill of Christianity because they they see that our lives just aren't lining up with what we're saying. They, they, they want a reason. And I'm not, I mean, think about this. People, they want a reason not to have to listen, don't they? They want a reason to be able to dismiss Christianity because most people know enough about Christianity to know that if they really buy in, it's going to change their life, right? And, and not, not all of us want our lives changed. We want things to be comfortable. And so people are often looking for a reason not to have to listen to what we say. And if, if our marriages are out of sorts, if our lives are hypocritical, if our work is shoddy, they can just say, see, Christians are just like the rest of us, right? They, they say that they're different. They say that this thing has changed their life, but they're just like the rest of us. There's nothing real there. It gives them a reason not to listen. And so many of us have people we long to see trust Christ. We long to see them trust Christ, and we can't save them. We can't make them believe but we can live lives of such conspicuous godliness that they can't ignore what we're saying. We're giving them a reason to listen. They can't ignore something that has so profoundly changed our lives. And that's the, that's the positive side. So positively, Paul says that when we live godly lives, 
we adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We show the beauty of the good news about Jesus. To adorn is to draw attention to something's beauty, right? So it's like the way the right necklace, a certain stone, brings out the green in someone's eyes, or the way uh, a haircut frames a lovely face. It doesn't, it doesn't make it beautiful, but it draws attention to it, right? It, it, it brings the eyes and it shows the beauty that's there. And the good news is like that. The good news is always beautiful. Grace is always beautiful. What Jesus has done is always beautiful, but people can't see it. But our lives can draw attention to its beauty. It can give them a focus on it. So what influence is your life having? Is, does the way you treat your kids make them more or less likely to listen to what you have to say about Jesus? Does the way you treat your boss make her more or less interested in hearing more about your weekend and what you did and what's important to you? Does the way you treat your neighbors make them more interested in having you over and just knowing what's different about your life? Does your life show the beauty of God's grace? If not, you don't need to wallow in guilt this morning because of God's grace, right? We don't need to, we don't need to beat ourselves up. We can go back to this grace that God has shown us, that, that we're not accepted because of what we've done, that we're not saved by our works, that we're saved because of what Jesus has done. We can go back to God and repent and ask forgiveness and embrace that grace for us again and ask him to change us. So the big idea this morning is that grace-shaped living leads to gospel growth. It leads to other believers growing in their love for the gospel as we teach them, as we set an example for them, as we encourage them in their walk, and it leads to those who haven't trusted the good news about Jesus, seeing its beauty and being attracted to it. The church grows in maturity and in number, in depth and in breadth. So the summer is lying before us, right? The summer is lying. Things slow down here. The summer is wide open how will you spend it? Will you press in to this book, to reading it and hearing it and rejoicing in it, responding to it? Will you wring out all the grace you can find? Are you, will you spend the summer pursuing these kinds of relationships, this distinctive godliness where you um, seek people you can encourage or seek a mentor, someone who can encourage you? Will you pursue the kinds of relationships with your friends and your family, your coworkers, your neighbors, relationships where they can see in your life, the beauty of the gospel, and be drawn to it. Ask you what makes you so different. The summer is lying wide before us, so let's use it to enjoy and to spread the grace we have in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you again for grace. We thank you that, that you love us and approve us and accept us and make us your children because of what Jesus has done and not because of what we've done. And we want, we want to be so thankful and so moved and so overwhelmed by that grace that we gladly live the kinds of lives you want us to live, godly lives, lives that show the beauty of grace. God, we, we need Jesus to do that. We are selfish and we are easily distracted and we're easily hindered. We need you to come and to work in our hearts and to give us a desire to pursue this. Please make us, Sunrise Community Church, a community shaped by grace that shows the beauty of the gospel and shows the beauty of what it's like to belong to you. So please help us. Please help us now um, to exalt you in, in our giving and in our singing and in everything we do for the rest of the day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.